Welcome to the new podcast, Leading by History, where we seek to take our listeners on a journey through history and educational leadership, changing our world and society one story at a time. Always a part of every school year's Black History program, Harriet Tubman is always mentioned each and every year. Yet, the narrative around Harriet Tubman's life continues to be that of an enslaved person who ran away from slavery and worked to help free other enslaved people. But Harriet Tubman represents to the educator, the historian, and the scholar a level of perseverance, critical thinking, analysis necessary to be successful, and what she showed and was able to manifest as a person who was enslaved and kept from and deprived of gaining an education was simply remarkable and something that we need to pay close attention to today. Harriet Tubman's date of birth is really unknown. Many records of enslaved people during the time period were, were not kept. Some were, were never maintained, some were destroyed, and some documents never existed. Most likely, her birth occurred between 1820 and 1825. She was said to be one of nine children born to enslaved parents in Dorchester County, Maryland. Now, her mother's name was Harriet, but she was called Ritt. Now, she was originally named Araminta Harriet Ross, but Harriet Tubman was nicknamed Minty by her parents. Araminta changed her name to Harriet around the time that she got married, some believe possibly to, to honor her mother. Her early life was full of extreme hardship, uh, family members being sold to distant plantations, and physical violence was something that she had to endure as a part of daily life. Tubman later recounted a particular day when she was beaten several times even before breakfast, and she carried these same scars for the rest of her life. Her most severe injury occurred when she encountered an enslaved person who had left the fields without permission, and the man's overseer demanded that Tubman help restrain the runaway. But when she refused, he took a two-pound weight and hit her in the head. And from that time forward, she would have severe seizures headaches, and narcoleptic episodes, which would actually be a great challenge for her as she escaped from slavery and would come back to help others escape. Between 1850 and 1860, Tubman made about 19 trips from the south to the north, following a very organized network referred to as the Underground Railroad. And she guided more than 300 people, including her parents, from slavery to freedom. And this earned her the name Moses for her leadership. She probably freed many others that we have no knowledge of and was said to have made the statement that she had freed a thousand slaves and she could have freed a thousand more if only they knew they were enslaved. Uh, having connection to John Brown of the famous Harper's Ferry Rebellion. Uh, she was referred to as General Tubman. She also served as a spy during the time of the Civil War. In 1859, abolitionist William Seward sold Harriet a little piece of land on the outskirts of New York. Uh, she spent her years following the war on the property, tending to and helping and raising her family. 
Despite her fame and reputation, she had no financial stability and would pass away from this earth with little to her name. But she did give freely in spite of her economic condition. And in 1903, she donated a parcel of her land to the African Methodist Episcopal Church in Auburn. Tubman died of pneumonia March 10th, 1913, being surrounded by friends and family at the ripe old age of 93. But upon her death, she received many honors. And even in modern times, as of April 2016, the U.S. Treasury Department decided that Harriet Tubman would replace Andrew Jackson on the center of the new $20 bill. The time period in which that was to be done has sadly been extended to an unforeseen future. But the power of her narrative, of her story, and of her commitment to justice and to freedom inspires people to this day. Today's episode of Leading by History will focus around the inspiration of Harriet Tubman and others like her. Let's get ready to dive deep in this week's extended episode of Leading by History. Welcome back to this week's episode of Leading by History. We've got a powerful show today, an interview with uh, Ms. Christy Coleman, uh, the CEO of the American Civil War Museum. And um, in, in today's episode, we're going to follow her journey and talk a little bit about uh, how she got to this place and position where she is today and also touch uh, briefly upon the changes that are taking place within the organization, the move, uh, the relocation of um, resources and space, and all of that interesting information that all of you want to know about um, one of our hallmarks in the city of Richmond. So we welcome to the show Miss Christy Coleman. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for the invitation to be here. Yes, we, we're definitely delighted to have you here today. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. What has the last couple of weeks looked like around here? <laughs> well, you know, after we got the new museum building open, then the part two was getting all the offices moved. And right. that's what we've been in the middle of. So there are people coming and going and furniture moving and pictures and frames to hang and waiting on furniture deliveries. And yes. it's just been more than a notion. But, you know, it's an exciting thing because, you know, you're moving forward. Right. So that's good. Yeah, so we're we're sitting right now in the open office here at the uh, American Civil War Museum and uh, around lunchtime, mm -hmm. and uh, so we're just having an open chat here, and um, we just want to really delve into the life of Christy Coleman. People have posed questions. I've seen things on Twitter. Um, some of the uh, young people, I think I read a uh, a tweet the other day of someone that was influenced by you greatly mm -hmm. um, from your time and, and mm -hmm. your journey, and, and they've moved on now into doing some, some great things for themselves. So we want to go back and we want to start at the beginning. You know, uh, today's episode uh, focus around, focuses around the life of Harriet Tubman mm -hmm. and um, the work that she did to go from slavery to freedom, as mm -hmm. John Hope Franklin would say. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you mentioned in our conversation prior to the interview about how she was someone that influenced you 
tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, and um, how uh, Tubman began to play a role, let's say, in the way that you were beginning to shape, um, you know, your journey. Yeah, so um, I'm actually, was born in Florida, but my family moved to Virginia uh, when I was nine. And we had lived in Philadelphia and in D.C. and in Florida. And uh, we were a little bit of everywhere um, because my mother was a singer. Mm. And so um, we settled in Williamsburg, Virginia. And my dad had gotten a really great opportunity there. So our family moved there. Very different kind of place from the urban environments where I had lived. And, you know, certainly the, the bigger part of it was I don't think I'd been around that many white people before right. as a kid. Um, and so, you know, at least in, you know, sort of school and immediate space and, and all of that. So it was very different. Um, but, you know, I, I was always a uh, very outgoing kid and very curious and, you know, all those kinds of things. And so uh, <clears throat> Harriet Tubman, uh, from probably elementary school, was always someone who was presented to me um, as someone worthy of of uh, emulating or following because she was, you know, resolute. She was a woman of faith. She, um, you know, had in her mind she 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 just you know she and she does so many different things. You know, pe- most people think about her solely as the Underground Railroad and helping to free three hundred plus people. But she does so much more than that. Um, You know, she's, when the American Civil War breaks out, she's a spy, then she's a nurse, then she's actually the only woman to ever lead a military operation and that's successful that ends up freeing another 700 plus people. Um, And so, so when I was going through school, whenever we'd have assignments in school, my parents, you know, who were definitely babies of the 60s, right? Uh So they... My parents uh, were like, well, you ought to do a report on so-and-so, or you ought to do, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, and the point, and, and what was so great about my parents, who are certainly my greatest inspiration, is that my parents always thought that I had the opportunity, because they knew she's got to give a book report, or she's got to give a this or that, mm-hmm. that that was my opportunity to share knowledge about mm-hmm. black contribution mm-hmm. to my class. Mm-hmm. Um and that I could do it persuasively, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so that was kind of it. And so Harriet Tubman was, was, again, one of those central figures. And each year I try to learn something new about her or, you know, uh, uh, when that came through. So she's just, you know, as a historical figure, she's amazing. As I got older, you know, other women come into your sphere. You know, um, I remember being, and I was probably 10 maybe, um, if if that old no, I don't think I was ten, um, when because we weren't living in Virginia when Shirley Chisholm announced mm. that she was running for president, and I thought ah, there's a black woman running for president of the United States, you know, and and how amazing that was, and so so by you know fast forward, you know um, I had you know I was a very very good student. Um, it was expected and required. You know, my parents, having grown up during segregation, 
talked about the power of education and how wonderful their schools and educate, you know, and teachers, their teachers in particular, but that the fight, you know, the way that they described it, the fight for integration wasn't about just going to school with white people. It was about being given the same resources because they never had them, but they had great teachers and they had, you know, great support all the way around them. And so, you know, and, and there were things that they learned that were not a part of the regular curriculum, which is, you know, again, why they would kind of uh, put that to me. So, um, so there was, you know, so I was always kind of watching and, and learning and processing all of this. And my parents were very political when I was a kid, so I'd get dragged to political rallies and, mm. you know, all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, and just seeing people living their passions and being willing to work their passions, right? So um, that all of that was a great influence on me. And then when I got to high school, you know, I was exploring more things. I loved the theater. I did my very first play when I was in the fifth grade, mm. uh, playing an unlikely role, which helped me like, wow, okay, so I can do that. And so one of my, f uh, there were two women who were, um, actually three women who were <laughs> uh, really, like uh, to me were really amazing uh, figures when I was in the th in theater when I was coming up. The first one was Cicely Tyson, mm -hmm. um, and she did this this amazing piece um, uh, called the Autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, mm -hmm. and uh, and I'll never forget that I'll never forget that that movie. Um, and then there was Diane Carroll who. Mm was uh, on TV a lot when I was little. Falcon Crest. It was, oh my God, <laughs> Dynasty and all, and all right that, right? right. Um, and before that, you know, playing a police officer, which was really mm. cool, uh, Teresa Graves mm. used to have this show called Get Christy Love. And, mm, you know, yes. and of course that tied in because, you know, my name right. is Christy. So, I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is there's so many people in different ways that influence me. Um, but two things stood out um, that has been, I would say, a constant even though figuring out how to express it or how to uh, find that space for me, um, even when those were difficult. And that is um, my love of storytelling, the narrative, the power of remembrance, but also the power of history was, has always been a constant. And, and that is tied to probably why I loved theater so much, um, because you could engage people on an emotional level so when I got my first summer job, my well, second summer job, it got my first job in museums anyway, at Colonial Williamsburg, when I was 17, um, it was both. It was mm. theater and it was history, and it was trying to correct the narrative, right? Mm. And that's a lot for a 17-year-old yeah, to want to process. Yeah, I was about to ask that question. <laughs> um, well, I mean, when I auditioned for the role, they didn't know that I was 17. Uh. They didn't ask. They asked for a resume, a theater resume, and that's exactly what they got. Wow. <laughs> you know, and on a good theater resume, you give your age range. You don't give your actual age, gotcha. right? So they didn't know until after they had made the offer, and I couldn't come to rehearsals because I was still in high school. Uh, but fast forward, they they let me keep the job, and I ended up working, and it was it was life altering because when I went to college and that that fall. Um, my intent was to become a lawyer because my parents told me theater is great. And of course, my mother absolutely got it because she, like I said, she was a singer when I was little. And she, but they always said, you got to have something else to fall back on. 
gotta have something else to fall back on. So what better way to fall back on something than to be an attorney, right? So, um, or I could have theater as my, you know, little hobby or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but that bug ended up being a lot stronger. Um, my experience in college was, uh, initially, was not at all what I anticipated or hoped it would be. Um, it was very frustrating for me, not from an academic, but from a social standpoint. I wish I had spent more time really investigating the school um, and really paying more attention to what was really happening on campus mm. versus um, just looking at their their rankings, right? And so, um, so my freshman year, you know, st- you know, starts off like most things. I mean, we, I remember, I'll never forget going, you know, this is the standard nonsense that they tell you of, you know, look to your left, look to your right, yes. one of you will be gone. I think every university does that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's foolishness, really. Um, and it was meant as a way to, to motivate you to be the two-thirds that stay, right? Um, and, but my... So, so there was, you know, adjustments to your own time and how you're managing your time and the new things that you're trying to do, you know. And when I was going through school, 18 was legal for everything, just about. Mm. So, <laughs> so mm. you know, I was 18 and I was legal. So, you know, was right. exploring who, who I was in, in that regard, too. So, but um, by the time I got to, the, before our second semester started, there was a fire on campus, and um, I, had a, I had taken to school with me a lot of sort of really personal childhood things. Um, you know, my first black Raggedy Ann doll, mm-hmm. right? Um, I had this, when I was probably five or six years old, my parents had given me this other doll called the Chrissy doll. Mm-hmm. And it had um, the hair that would grow out the top of her head and you could roll it back up and you could, mm-hmm. you know, so it could be short hair or it could be long hair, mm-hmm. it could be this or that. And I loved that doll. And I kept her, um, and she went to college with me, along with, again, some other personal effects. Well, my dorm burned down. Mm-hmm. And, and it, was, it could have been a crisis point. It was a crisis point. Um, a lot, there, there were, not a lot, but there were several of my classmates who could not stay to kind of wait out what our housing situation was going to be and still trying to go to class when they didn't have a place to live. And you know, some people were bunking it in other dorms with friends um, even though they weren't supposed to but the school I mean the school really didn't know how to deal with the fact that you got 300 plus kids who don't have a place to live Mm. Um, but what it in that moment it it was a shift for me emotionally because to deal with that loss I (laughs) said things don't matter and you know the value on things and we spend too much money on things to begin with and that was sort of my way to cope with it um and and so and i you know i kind of got through that and then by my second year of college there i had really become <laughs> completely radicalized mm-hmm. by things that were happening on a national, international, and very local scale. And that was, there was, um, we were trying to get, um, Nelson Mandela needed to be released, and that was a huge international thing, you know, to free Nelson Mandela. And then to discover that my college had massive investments in South Africa, not just in Kugaram, but in other businesses, was 
infuriating on top of all the other sort of social dynamics that I was dealing with. And so like-minded students and myself, we formed uh, an alliance of students um, to fight this and to get our um, administration and our alumni association to, um, and we had some faculty support around it, to divest. Mm -hmm. And it was an extraordinary thing um, and I got in a lot of trouble. Um, uh, I had gotten suspended mm-hmm. for my political activity on campus at one point. And I, and I came back and then, you know, my parents are like, what are you doing with our money? <laughs> you better stop, figure out what you're gonna do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on one hand they were very proud, but at the same time, you know, my, my parents were working class people and, you know, and they and what was so weird about it is that they understood because they did it, right? But at the same time, now they're parents, mm-hmm. and they're like, "All right, girl, you wasting our money. Mm-hmm. You know, you we didn't send you to that school for you to be wasting our money. You better get your grades and figure out what you're gonna do." And so all of this was going on, and 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 I had a couple of other opportunities that were acting, and so I decided to pursue that. And I went to my parents and I said, "Look." I'm not happy at the college. I want to leave. Mm-hmm. I don't know where I want to go. I don't even know what I want to do anymore. I'm not even sure I want to be a lawyer anymore. But I know I love this. Mm-hmm. And this was the narrative. This was the history and the culture and the and the performance and the, I mean all of that I loved. And so my parents, God love them. I mean they they said okay. Mm-hmm. They said, we'll give you three semesters to figure out what you want to do and where you want to end up going. If you go back to school in three semesters, we will continue to pay for your education. Mm. If you don't, Mm. it's on you. Mm. (laughs) I didn't go back to school in three (laughs) semesters. (laughs) So I take it was on you. It was on me. Yeah, it was was definitely my dime after that. but you know the so what, what what were you doing during the the three semesters what what was taking place there uh self-search a combination <laughs> yeah i mean but I, I mean i had to work you okay. know i had i had to support myself okay. i mean they weren't gonna do it i wasn't back at home I was, oh you, you weren't know. back at home oh okay. no right. no i had an apartment that's probably the parents don't let your children talk you into getting an apartment right. sophomore year. Right. Big mistake. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I what I did, I mean, I was acting. Okay. Um, so I still had the part time job at Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. Um, I had an agent by that time okay. um, out of Virginia Beach. And and Virginia Beach used to have like four or five different studios mm. at, at, in the 80s, late 80s. And so. I um, was getting auditions for a lot of, you know, TV, a couple movies, a lot of voice work, um, because the the film and the TV roles for a dark girl like me were extremely limited and insulting, mm. and um, unless they were theater, unless it was stage work, stage work was fantastic, but um, TV and film work left much to be desired, mm. and. Um, so, you know, so my, my, and because at that time I was really good with accents, really good with, mm. with, uh, yeah, I had a really great ear for, for, um, different, whether it was a, 
regional sort of dialect or whether it was um, a foreign accent. Okay. I was really good at it. Mm. And so I would get, you know, quite a bit of voice work. And, but there was, so there was, and I'll say this, that sometimes what I've come to, to understand over the years is that sometimes frustration and defeat and anger are not necessarily bad things because they can focus you. Mm-hmm. And that was my case. They focused my behavior. Fear, and, frustration, and defeat. And anger. And anger, okay. Can be focused into something quite powerful beyond yourself. There is, all of those are all very valid emotional places. It is what you choose to do with them, right, that will define you. Okay. And so in my case, um, I had gotten a, a voice work. It was a national campaign for a major bank. Um, and I had been hired to do this. It was going to be this whole campaign. And there was going to be residuals. And like this was going to be like my big, big thing. Right. And I'm sitting in the studio doing the voice work and the recordings. And there was, you know, they weren't calling for anything in particular, right? Um, but this particular one was, in fact, aimed at uh, black banking, trying to grow black banks, and, you know, black folk to the bank. And so we were doing the voice recording, and, and so we'd spend all day doing these different recordings. So the, the ad agency comes on the phone, because um, we, we did record in Virginia, and the ad agency comes on the phone, and they're listening to the tapes, and like, well... You know they're they're really pretty good, but not quite the full flavor that we want. Mm. So you know the director's like, well, they sound great to me. What are you talking about? And they said, well, she just doesn't sound black enough. Mm. So you know, so I was like, <laughs> wow. okay. Um, well, this is you know targeted to um, black consumers, and so they just need to know that the person that they're hearing is black. So, you know, it, so, you know, that bristled me. But, right. you know, I'm like, okay, these people are paying me quite a bit of money to sit in this room. Let me figure out what's going on here and what they mean by that. They said, can you, you know, read again this time, you know, black. <laughs> I mean, I swear to God, that's how they said it to me. And so the, the, the actor that's sitting with me, you know, he's got that look like, Lord, have we been here more times than I can say. And he was older than I was. So I said, okay, so try it again and this time I go like deep Virginia right <laughs> you know and I come back no 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 that's too southern it's mm. not black mm. I was like well I'm black I'm from the south I mean you know I'm like mm. like okay and we did this like two or three times and then finally she says no I mean you know like urban kind of and she, this Some woman double negatives it, in it, there it, but that's not what was written on the page <laughs> you see what I'm saying and so she she continued, and it was becoming increasingly insulting, and I was at an age where my filter didn't always work well. And, and I finally just said, I'm so sorry, what is your name? And she said her name, you know, and I said, mm, you don't sound like a New York Jewish woman either, <laughs> right? And then everything went dead silent, and the director is sitting on the other side of the glass like, <gasps> you know, and and the, the actors next to me is about to bust a gut. 
And she says, I'm sorry, what? And I said, you don't have any idea how much of a stereotype you are perpetuating. I said, I'm sorry, I can't, I don't know what else you want. I don't know what you expect. And you trying to emulate what you want is truly insulting. You don't mm. get it. And excuse me, could you, you know, can we talk to the director? And they silence our booth and our headphones. And... um he comes back in, face red as a beet, and he's like, I'm so sorry. He said, I thought this was fantastic, um, but they are firing you. Mm. I was like, fine, whatever. <laughs> I walk out, my agent is furious. I mean, she is furious. Um, and, I, and in that moment, as I was kind of going, not, you know, not that particular moment, but as I was processing that insult, is when I realized I need, I'm going to write more. Mm. If they don't know what our roles are, I will write them. I will create them. And call my parents. I said, I'm going back to school. And they're like, okay. Now, here's the funny part. So I, and I have to be clear. I went back for a semester. Back to that first school. Went back for another semester. And I knew that was, and again, that was a huge mistake. But I went back because their theater department was extraordinary. I mean, extraordinary theater department. And I was doing really well. My very first play was produced by the college. Um, and I realized, I'm good at this. I can, I can do this because I got all these ideas and things in my head. This is what I'm going to do. I will give up the stage and I will get, you know, in the director's chair, in the writer's chair, or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I was thinking about it. Um, and what and age then I dropped out 20. Tw <laughs> okay. I was 20. Okay. 20, 21, maybe. All right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty, I mean, frankly, to, to have your very first play that you ever write produced by a major university at 20, 21, that's not bad. Right. And so. And my, my writing uh, coach was on me all the time. My writing professor was on it. But he had produced several Emmy Award winning writers. Uh, his, one of his most famous writers was uh, uh, a woman who was the, one of the executive producers and writers on MASH for several years. Mm -hmm. And Glenn and, um, and Close was one of his students. And you know, there's just a whole slew of people uh, me and Linda Powell were in the program together. And um, so, you know, I just, I was like, okay, this is what I'll do, but I'm not going to do it here. So I dropped out again. Mm -hmm. And then that time I was out for a couple years. Uh, again, pursuing the work, pursuing um, all of these other things. But again, that sort of history, passion, narrative, all that is still very active in my world. Uh, wanting very much, reading more, researching more, because I wanted to write these stories. Mm -hmm. I wanted to write about empowered, enslaved people. I wanted to write about folks that weren't enslaved. I wanted to write our stories. I wanted to, you know, place us back in the American narrative the way we really were. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then uh, moved to Baltimore got a job at a museum in Baltimore where I had the opportunity to do some of these things and experiment with that and work directly with um, our communities 
in the engagement in a completely different way. And, and that began the career arc. And so it was another moment of anger there hmm. that um, where I had someone who was uh, one of my superiors who, frankly, I thought was <laughs> not the brightest of the bulbs, but was in a leadership position for the life of me. And then I'd tell him, no, you know, really, this is this. And um, he thought I had gotten a bit ahead of myself because when I was 24, 24, I had gotten um, a, I, I had been chosen as one of like six or seven maybe young museum professionals from around the country to work at the Smithsonian on a fellowship. Mm-hmm. And that was just like more than a notion and, you know, that, you know, they didn't, he didn't really want me to do that. But it was, you know, they were paying for it. So, I mean, it's like, I'm going, you know, now. Mm. Hang on, because, mm. <laughs> you know, it's about to get fun. Mm. Um, but after I went through the Smithsonian program and had the chance to meet amazing people like Dorothy Redford and Claudine Brown and um, Lonnie Bunch and Spencer Crew and all these amazing people who would be colleagues and mentors over the years... Um, that's when I realized I really got to go back to school and I know what my real vehicle is. And so how did you go about the process? I see you now developing a vision of where you want to go and what, what needs to be done. But now how do you choose what school to go back to? Well, right, right. So the choice was I looked at, um, I looked back at the family. Mm-hmm. Um, I had several relatives, you know. I, okay, so to be clear, I have sixty-one first cousins. Wow. Right. And, you know, thirty on one side of the family and thirty-one on the other. Mm. And several were HBCU graduates, historically black colleges. Um, Spelman, Morehouse, Hampton, North Carolina A and T, Tuskegee, and Fisk. Um, I knew I couldn't afford out of state because um, I had come back to Virginia, called my parents. I was like, look, I'm, I'm doing that. And we had a family friend who was provost at Hampton, and he said he'd talk to me. So I went down and talked to him about what I was trying to do. And, you know, I got credits from Baltimore Community College and, you know, my previous college and, and all this. And I said, I, but this is what I want to do. I am going into museums, mm-hmm. and I need to have business background and history background and this is what I need and he said okay he said so first of all yes you need to come to Hampton we got you okay Um, he said second of all we have a program that's an interdisciplinary studies and you can build it however you want Mm. and like really and on top of that they had a master's program when the only master one of the few at that time it um, it was like there was only two maybe three at that time, that had master's degree programs in museum studies at an HBCU. Mm. So Hampton University became my choice to go back to school, even though the tuition was three times what I was paying at the state school. Right. Because, you know, it's private. So then it was like, oh, my God, you know, I don't want any student loans. My parents have made it clear they are not paying a dime because now they're working on my sister's, you know, tuitions. Right. And um, so 
went back to work, did a few little acting things on the side, but I was focused on finishing and ended up graduating top of my class at Hampton. And then my employer, by that time I was working full-time for Colonial Williamsburg, writing historic drama and performing and directing, they um, said that they would cover my master's program. Excellent. So that was a tuition-free program. And for me, you know, because my employer paid for that. It's a very rare thing today for employers to do that. But in the 90s, they were still doing it. And so, you know, um, and I had good mentors, really great mentors there. Um, And they gave me a considerable amount of freedom to explore some really challenging elements of uh, the revolutionary era and the the paradox of slavery and the age of freedom. Mm. And they basically just like, do it. Let's see what it is. Mm. Let's see what you can do. And um, and that by that point, it was pretty clear to me um, how I could continue my work. And so my passion has really always been about getting the narrative of America right. And, and, and there are two parts of that, because I really believe we will never get right with each other if we can't get our history right, for better and for worse. And there are a lot of bad things that we as Americans, under the guise of America, have done to fellow Americans, right? Um, and it's kind of like dealing with a drunk uncle in the family who's abusive. Mm-hmm. You can love him, but at the end of the day, you really have to deal with what alcoholism is doing to the family. You got to deal with that disease to fix it. And that disease would be symbolic of. It would be symbolic of America's continued adherence to this notion of white supremacy that has impacted virtually everything we have done. Um, and what makes that, that's the paradox, I think, of today. That reality is still there, but in the midst of that, that people, Americans, regardless of ethnicity or religious background, we fight for the ideals that were set out almost 250 years ago. We fight for that. We use those words to fight for our rightful place in the narrative of America. And in, ultimately, what we're fighting for is equality and equal justice. And we don't have it, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have it. But, you know, when you have people saying things like, you know, um, you know, America was a white country. No, it wasn't. It was full of different native nations. And because of white supremacy or the notion thereof that they could somehow, you know, overtake, you know, the, the whole groups of people for their vision of, of what the world should be. You know, that's sort of the first set of genocides and, and ongoing policies against native peoples that are ridiculous. And then you import millions and millions of others to be your labor force, you know, um, we're an entire economy of a nation, not just of a section of the country, but the entire economy of the nation is built on the very adaptable, very flexible institution of enslaving peoples of African descent. 
We're going to take a pause right there, take a break, and we'll be right back after this break. All right, we're back. We were talking about America's legacy of of racism, America's legacy of of bondage, etc. And you know how these things are in your mind where you want to as you say get America's narrative right mm-hmm. uh to be able to present to people through theater and maybe other means as well um what the story of america should should look like so now how do you we know that you move into uh museum studies mm-hmm. right you get your masters degree mm-hmm. in that area so now what does life look like from masters mm-hmm. degree in that area um until today until today so you know um I got the master's degree, and within a few months, I was actually named a director at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation and would continue to to build my administrative skills from everything from budgeting to uh, various types of programming, not just using theater, but actually the power of object and the power of exhibition and, and things like that. And to me, it's always been about what is the narrative? What is the arc, the story arc that can compel people um, forward to really think about the past, and like I said, whether whether people realize it fully or not, and I hope that they do in the in the work that I've done at different institutions, is that there's always optimism. I am eternally optimistic that one day, even if it's not in my lifetime, I am eternally optimistic that we will get this right. We will be the e pluribus unum. We will be all men and women are created equal endowed with their creator you know i i believe those words so much and and even when i have personally struggled with not having those things extended to me and the ones that i love but i believe them i fight for that um and so i don't I think it's important to understand that we can be better. And so I'm definitely don't do howdy duty kind of programming. Mm-hmm. I work for all of our voices to be heard, but it has to be from spoken from truth. We cannot keep lying to each other about our collective past. We can't keep fabricating things to make ourselves feel better be- as a response to trauma. Mm-hmm. We have to address it. and we have to move on and we have to find collective strength and we have to find individual sort of space and responsibility um to make your space to help move it forward for somebody else mm-hmm. so um that and i learned that from my parents you know i learned that from my parents and my aunties and my uncles and the friends and the family and the support that of watching people 
make it happen. When, you know, making, as, as the folks used to say, make a way out of no, no way, way right. you know? Um, so if you had told me even, if you told that 25-year-old girl that she was going to be working in a museum in Richmond about the Civil War, I would have laughed. <laughs> I was like, I ain't doing that for a variety of reasons. And growing up, you know, growing up in Virginia, certainly the, the Confederacy dominated the narrative. They took it over mm-hmm. to, to know resemblance to the reality mm-hmm. that was actually lived. So with this museum now, the American Civil War Museum and the new exhibits that we've opened, the People's Contest, um, what we were bound and determined to do was to present this war through artifact and letter and and diary and you know anchored in extraordinary scholarship some of the leading minds in the nation actually in the world came to our aid excuse me the the point was to bring the story back the way people actually lived it they didn't live just a military story they didn't live just a home front story they didn't just live a black story or a white story they lived each moment in these varying themes where it was all connected what happened at home is definitely going to affect on the battlefield what's happening on the battlefield is going to affect the politics and so forth there was this continual swirl of chaos during this period of time that that will define what we will be right and so uh, we wanted to make sure that all of the voices, especially those who had been dismissed, mm. were incorporated again back into it the way it was lived. And I think that we've done an extraordinary job, and I am very, very proud of that. Um, and so, I, you know, when people, you know, that have come through have been really kind of surprised it's like there's a that's, is that a Chinese person over there it's like mm. that's right that is exactly right that Chinese soldier made a decision he wasn't drafted he wasn't he made a decision mm. he made a decision to stand and fight in this conflict even though he was not considered a citizen even though he was born in the United States mm. right mm-hmm. at that time he was not even considered a citizen, you know, or when they look and see, you know, um, the Cherokee uh, representative who is representing the Cherokee Nation in the Confederacy. Mm. And you go, Indians in the Confederacy, yeah, they were slave slave traders along with the, you know, the Cherokee, the Choctaw, but there's 16 other Native nations who will align with the United States, even though the United States had not honored a single treaty. Mm. And yet this idea of what this war could mean mm. of a universal freedom in this nation living up to its creed was powerful enough to move them mm. to align. You see what I'm saying? Yes. So when you put all of those voices and those energies back into it, this isn't just a brother against brother conflict. Correct. This isn't a, you know, oh, it really wasn't about slavery. It was states about rights. states' rights. <laughs> or it really wasn't about... When you put all of the players back in, it becomes really obvious what the war started as, but then what it became because of the actions of individuals who had the most to gain to make sure that the nation lived up to her creed. To me, that is a powerful, powerful story. 
Um, and we just have never gotten it quite right. And for the first time, I feel like we've come closer to getting it right in the amount of space that we have to tell it. So that's, that's what I do. And at the end of the day, it is still writing. It is still um, finding that narrative that connects people to the past and to each other. So this is a powerful um, journey. This is a, a journey worthy of discussion and reflection. How you start off at a, um, <laughs> you know, a university that yeah. wasn't an HBCU. Right. And you find yourself, you know, moving through um, experiences, emotions, mm-hmm. ups and downs. To finally becoming a director yeah, at the yeah, yeah. at, at Williamsburg. Colonial Williamsburg, yeah. right? And then I would go off and be. Um, I was recruited out to be a um, recruited out to become the president and CEO of what was then the largest African American museum in the country, and um, huh. and and then I was recruited. I I left because I became a mom. Ah. And. Uh, when our second child was born and we decided to move back to Virginia because my husband's family was in the D.C. area and my family was still in Williamsburg and it was a great way to be closer to to siblings and all of that. Uh, But, uh, and then this, you know, this this was the opportunity. And at first, you know, frankly, when it was just the American Civil War Center before the merger and all of that in 2013, when I moved here in 2008, um, it was a much smaller museum than I had been accustomed to, which meant I could be the kind of mom I wanted to be home every evening to cook my family dinner and to, to go to my kids' stuff, and you know, much smaller. And, but I also saw the potential of the place, mm. and what they were trying to do was so. I, I just thought it was gutsy, and mm. and it really appealed to that side of me about trying to get it right, and um, so. You know, I, that's how it is. You know, I came in and, and I did it with the intent of, you know, maybe five years and then moving on. But more opportunities presented themselves and continue to present themselves. And and we've had not only an impact, I think, in the Richmond area, but I know that we've had a national impact in the storytelling. And, and I see it all the time. I mean, since we've opened our doors, we've had colleagues coming in literally from all over the country to see this work. Uh, other museums, um, academic scholars, everyday people just coming in to see it and, and watching their response has been extraordinary. And so um, that that keeps me uh, motivated. I have no idea uh, where the creator is going to th- put me next. I have mm. no idea. Um, but I um, have decided that I've reached a point now where I don't need my anger to motivate. Right. I, am, I have addressed most of those demons, and now it is, where does my love lead me? Mm. And um, so that's, that's next. So in, in, in closing, mm-hmm. um, what would be your message to other institutions, cultural institutions, historical institutions, what would, be, what would be your message to institutions, not only here in the Central Virginia area, but around the nation um, that may not be in the position um, to have such 
um, forward moving, thinking, change, transpiring, but yet they know it needs to take place, but haven't really figured out how to do it when you're thinking about stakeholders and mm-hmm, boards mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. communities. What, what's your message overall to not just CEOs or mm-hmm. directors, but even to, you know, that, that docent or et cetera? Right, right, right. What's the message on how they should look at moving forward if, 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 if it's known and understood that the narrative needs to be amended or adjusted um, to to bend towards <laughs> right truth. I think you know the the biggest lesson through it all is I think you got to have that sort of yin and yang. You got to know what infuriates you, but you also got to know what what you love, so that you can find that space that's yours to navigate and move it. Um, And it doesn't have to be in a CEO chair. I tell people all the time, you don't have to be a CEO to initiate change. It's the power of the idea. I mean, for God knows, I mean, you know, in the early part of my career, I was so many levels down from the CEO, but I knew what I wanted to affect. I knew what my talents and skills were and what I loved to, to, to do. And what's interesting about that is when you pursue that, not pursue, you know, we all gotta figure out how to pay the bills. So I'm clear about that. But I also know when you find that thing that you love and that you can impact and move, uh, whether it's in history and culture or education or whatever that field is, when you find your thing and you pursue that out of love, Mm. the results come. Mm. Um, The impact comes. And interestingly enough... um, the acknowledgement and the financial support comes. Mm. Believe it or I, That's I, good I, to hear. It, it, <laughs> it does. It does. I mean, I, you, know, it's, you know, a long time ago, I was like, Lord, if I'm going to be working in museums. I ain't going to never make no money. <laughs> never going to make any money. And I have always been able to earn exactly what I needed, no more, no less, to affect the kind of life that I wanted for myself and for my children. Um, and, um, and, and the other part of that, quite frankly, is be around like-minded people. Seek out your inspiration um, and don't be afraid to talk to them because you'd be amazed how accessible people are. Mm. I mean, they really are. I mean, it, it, it astounds me that, you know, a simple note um, of like, hey, you know, I've really been, I read your book or I read your this or I saw you at such and such and I would love to uh, interact with you or I'd like to learn more or what would you suggest? People, you know, most people are pretty decent about that. Right. You know, you're always going to have that one, right? They're so full of themselves that, you know, uh, the almighty themselves couldn't bring them to any humility. But most people aren't really like that. And they will engage with you, whether it's once or a hundred times. And and that, I think, was probably the most helpful to me in this journey, is that, number one, I was never afraid to ask for help. Never be afraid to ask for help. 
Know where your weaknesses are. Know where your blind spots are. Ask for help. What do I need to learn? How do I do it? Who should I be talking to? And you will align yourself with some pretty remarkable people. Mm. But if you ain't willing to listen, right. you ain't going nowhere. I'll tell you right now. I mean, I, I, you know, I've had that conversation with a few young people here. Like, well, I'm going to give you the advice. Ultimately, you will make the decision because you may have a fresh new approach to it. But there are certain things that you absolutely want to be mindful of, and that is respect folk. That's a simple thing. You walk in a room and you're, well, these people in this room are just so-and-so. Anybody trying to hear that? You walk in the room and say, we have an opportunity to do it a little different. Here's my idea. What can we do? How do we leverage that? But you walk in the room trying to blast everybody in there, you know, now you've just put everybody on the defensive, right? right. And and that isn't going to move you. And then you're going to be frustrated. And then you're going to make excuses about why this person and that person, they don't, they don't get it. No, we are a collective. And there is always space for new ideas. And there's always space for that righteous anger. There is always space for that. But to pretend that you're the only one Mm -hmm. that has ever had it is a mistake of arrogance and often youth. And and then sometimes there's nothing worse than a foolish older person who just keeps talking, Mm. right? But still can't manage to get it done Mm. at the end of the day. So, and and so I I just, that's kind of where I I stand. And I am uh, absolutely... And to be to be clear, because I'm absolutely not a uh, I don't get down with sort of this respectability politics nonsense. Be in the space that you are, own your space, but also you're recognizing that you are know your environments and how to move in your environments to affect what you love and what you want to change. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I <laughs> and, and that comes from a person who, you know, I, I, I know how hard I pushed on a lot of things, uh, especially when I was younger. And the best advice uh, one of my mentors gave me once, he said, so many great things coming out of your head. This is what I want you to do the next time you walk into a room. Shut up and listen. Mm. He said, Watch how people are moving, what they're thinking, what they're, how they're acting, how they're responding, and then come back the next time. Say what you got to say. Mm. And it was such great advice, such great advice. Um, yes. It was great advice because mm. I, by being quiet, I was actually observing people. And that's kind of the actor in me for sure is that watching how people move and what they say and interpreting movement and and all that was a big part of my my younger self Um, because I used to, you know, steal people's tics Mm -hmm. uh, when I was performing. And so so watching people became real. And I still love to watch people. I just love this. I I will go in the gallery sometime, just sit and watch, watch people because you learn from it. Um, and and then you know how to, okay, this person, this is the thing that they love, or this is the thing that they get, or this is the, their blind spot, or this is, and, it, uh, and it, it teaches you how to navigate space to put forth your, idea. your ideas in a, in a positive way. 
Um, and I think that that's extraordinary. Doesn't mean you're putting them forward any less passionate. It's like now you know how to, you know how to do it. Yes. Best advice I ever got. Um, the second best advice was sometimes you got to get out of your own way to allow you to really take in the things around you so you know your own ideas can foment better. Um, that's, you know. Right. Yeah, that's that's just kind of how I am. So now, like, you know, I'm, I'm surrounded by a lot of um, younger professionals and professionals that are my age, but um, it's the beautiful thing is I've tried to create a culture here where everybody feels that they own it and mm-hmm. that they're responsible for it. Mm. And so there's no need to, they don't have to, there's, you know, there certainly is a hierarchy, but there's no pressure on that. You know, I had a young man the other day, works at our front desk, he said, Christy, I got an idea about, and I'd like to bring a theater approach to da-da-da. I said, okay, write it up. Not go to your supervisor, go talk to education, write it up. Let's see what you got. Present it at the next all-staff meeting. Let's see what we got, what Mm. we can do with it. Mm. You know, and I know that's a slightly different environment than most people are used to working in, Um, but that's where shut up and get out of your own way because there might there's always a better idea and it can come from the least likely places that's correct yeah that's correct yeah well thank you so much thank for you me thank you show. thank you I for uh, for being here and for sharing your journey mm-hmm. and um how can the listeners get more information about the org and what's going on Right, right. Well, they can always visit our website, really simple, www.acwm, for American Civil War Museum, .org. Um, you can always call us. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're, we're, every, we're everywhere you are except, I think, I don't think we're on Pinterest and Tumblr anymore. Okay. I know we're not on Snapchat. Right. Uh, <laughs> there's no point in being on Snapchat when you want stuff to kind of exist. Right, right. Um, but, you know, we're, we're out there. All you got to do is look us up. And uh, every portal is a door to us. Right. Um, so come and see us. Come and spend some time. And, uh, and we're always looking for good people. All right. All right. Well, from Leading by History, we thank you for being a part of the show today, and we say to you, peace. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Leading by History podcast, and we look forward to getting back together with you again on our next show. Until then, peace. Peace.